Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 61, The Esoteric and the State in Ancient Rome, part 2, The State and the Stars. In this episode, we're going to explore the growth of astrology in the Roman world and the relation between the Roman state and this new Hellenistic import. It's a long and fascinating story which has a lot to tell us, not only about the ongoing development of astrology, because astrology is something we want to document in this podcast for its own sake as an essential part of the Western esoteric tradition, but also about state power and the potential for esoteric knowledge to cause it problems. We'll start with a look at the way in which astrology entered into the Roman Republic, look at some theoretical stuff to do with this process of adoption, and then turn to the early empire, a time of pretty crazy astrological goings-on at the highest levels of state. If you thought astrology was a fringe concern of meek esotericists just kind of doing their thing far from the centers of power, wait until you see the centrality of astrology to the first emperor Augustus's imperial policy and propaganda the dynasties of astrologers, powers behind the throne, which were a feature of the early empire, and, wait for it, the imperial mass assassinations of people with dangerous-looking horoscopic charts. It gets fun. But having hopefully whetted your appetite for some sensationalist goodies, let's do a quick, more prosaic survey of our evidence for how astrology got to be a Roman thing in the first place. A first point of reference are the years 229 to 146 BCE, during which 83-year period, the Roman Republic conquered the Hellenistic kingdoms. So beginning from the end of the 3rd century, a time well within what we've been discussing as the Hellenistic period, the slow, inexorable Roman land grab was underway in the background. As we know, the Romans had already conquered the Italian peninsula, so the Greek cities of Magna Graecia had already been under Roman rule for some time, which obviously brought with it Greek cultural influence. And as we also know, the Romans didn't conquer Egypt until the year 31 BCE, but these dates, 229 to 146, are indicative of Rome pretty much swallowing up the majority of the Greek-speaking world around the Mediterranean. Now, no one knows exactly how astrology entered into the Latin-speaking world, but it pretty obviously had to do with this large-scale absorption of Greek territories, and importation of thousands of Greeks to Italy in the form of slaves. Often slaves highly valued for their knowledge. Among the most valuable slaves in this era were Greeks who could be teachers for the Roman elite's children who wanted to learn, well, Greek, and all the sciences which were available in that language. Ancient authors actually give a few theories as to the exact moment astrology came to Rome, Pliny, for example, tells us that a Greek slave called Manilius Antiochus was brought to Rome and sort of brought astrology with him. But knowing as we do that thousands of well-educated Greek slaves were pouring into Rome in the wake of the conquests from the 220s onward, if it wasn't this Manilius Antiochus, it would have been someone else. Rome brought Greece to her, enslaved. Now, the Romans of the old school were a very conservative, very reactionary people, and all this expansion and foreign immigration really bothered many of them. And if we can generalize, this reactionary response to the influx of foreigners was especially typical of the senatorial class, the ruling elite of the Republic. And this makes sense because they were the top dogs in the old days when Romans were Romans, and so on and so forth. But unfortunately for them, the last two centuries BCE 
saw an enormous flood of foreigners wash up in Rome from all over the Mediterranean region as Rome herself gobbled up more and more territory. There was no going back. However, the Senate tried. They passed many decrees attempting to curb the flow. Some of those decrees are of interest to us as students of esoteric history, so let's have a look at a few. All the dates we're about to mention are BCE for now. The year 186 saw a senatus consultum banning private religious ceremonies at Rome. A senatus consultum, incidentally, was a fairly new kind of emergency decree that the Senate could pass. Now, what lay behind this move to ban private religious ceremonies was suspicion of the huge influx of Oriental cults, which were becoming hugely popular among the Romans. Things like the cult of Isis and Magna Mater, a goddess from Asia Minor, and lots of other interesting, weird, and wonderful cults. And the rise of private religious sodalities, or collegia, more generally. Now, this was not a decree applying to the Roman-controlled world as a whole. We should emphasize that. It applied to Rome herself and her Italian territories. The senators basically wanted to clean up Rome. It's not that they had a kind of totalizing religious discourse that they wanted to make everyone in the Roman realm into a good Roman pagan. That never seems to have occurred to anyone. Um, they weren't concerned about magna mater worshippers in Anatolia. They were irrelevant, but they were concerned with these effeminate foreign scum bringing their corrupt ways to Rome. There was also almost certainly a more practical, sort of real politic reason for this ban. The collegium, or private religious confraternity, was of course the perfect platform for organizing anything from a bake sale to a plot against the state. And we'll see this again and again in history. State power often seeks to shut down any religious movement which is not fully public and in line with the approved state religion. So two things. It has to be public, we have to be able to see what you're doing, and it has to be in line with the reigning orthodoxy. Ideologies of the foreign and the forbidden thus dovetail perfectly in cases like this with practical suppression of dissent. Um, a modern example that comes to mind is the suppression of the Sufi orders by Ataturk at the dawn of the Turkish Republic, but many, many other examples could be brought forth. Sporadic attempts to suppress Freemasonry being a, another classic one. About a decade later, in 173 BCE, two Epicurean philosophers were expelled from Rome, two specific guys by name. Again, this was probably a reactionary move against dangerous Greek ideas generally, but it may be that these two Epicureans in question were being particularly obnoxious in some way. At any rate, we should note that Epicureanism had no time whatsoever for any form of religious worship, and was often characterized by its opponents as an atheist philosophy. It wasn't an atheist philosophy, but it did think that religious cult was pointless because the gods just don't care about humans one way or another, so it kind of amounted to atheism in a practical way. So the conservative Roman Senate could not have this sort of corrupting influence at Rome being taught to the young men of the upper classes, so they kicked these two guys out. Now they upped the ante about 10 years after this in the year 161, when the Senate forbade any foreign philosophers or rhetoricians from staying at Rome. They were obviously worried about this whole philosophy and rhetoric business and the societal effects it was having. Now, we should note here that this edict did take effect, but there was a very important loophole. And to explain this loophole, we need to pay a brief visit to the Hellenistic Greek world. If you've been wondering whatever happened to those Greek city-states, the polis, where all those classical philosophers like Plato were living in, well, 
this is what happened. They had been incorporated into larger Hellenistic kingdoms. But in these kingdoms, the custom had been to allow them to continue to function semi-autonomously. Obviously, there were some new taxes to pay, and maybe there was some new cult to be offered to the Hellenistic ruler, who was often semi-divine in the Hellenistic context. But an Athens or a Corinth, or whatever, had remained Athens or Corinth, with its own sort of local city council running things and so forth. So the Romans continued this sensible policy which extended not just to city-states, but to other recognized Hellenistic local governmental bodies, as we saw in the case of the Jewish ethnos at Alexandria, who were a kind of independent state within a state to some degree. They had their own laws and so forth. Now, this is where our loophole comes in, because when a Greek city had a problem that needed redressing, or otherwise they needed to communicate with the Senate at Rome, they would send an embassy to Rome, and this would tend to be led by prominent citizens, often their best philosophers and rhetoricians. This makes sense, right? Especially on the rhetoric side, someone who can plead your case persuasively to the emperor. We saw this in the case of Philo, who was sent by the Alexandrian Jews to talk with Gaius, aka Caligula. So there seems to have been a kind of diplomatic immunity with regard to these particular philosophers and rhetoricians. And in this way, some very important philosophic teaching occurred at Rome during the Republic, even after this edict was passed, and some of this will be very relevant to the story of astrology, as we shall see. And speaking of the A word, in the year 139, astrologers and worshippers of Zeus Sabasius were ejected from Rome en masse. Now, this is actually the first we've seen of astrology in our story so far, on the official level, but obviously astrology must have been growing in the background all along, or the Senate wouldn't have bothered to expel all the astrologers. So we've established that the Republican Senate was trying to stem the tide of exotic and dangerous foreign cults and philosophical subversion of Roman values. They were fighting a losing rearguard action. Now let's back up and get a picture of what we can say about Roman interest in astrology that led up to this attempt to expel all the astrologers. Do you remember Ennius, the father of Latin epic poetry, whom we mentioned two episodes ago, not to be confused with Aeneas. He lived from 239 to 169 BCE, basically around the same time when the Romans were busy conquering all the Greeks. And Aeneas, in a surviving fragment, makes our first reference in Latin poetry to astrology and the zodiac. So it's around in the third century. Romans know about it. In the roughly 100 years between Aeneas and our friends Varro and Nigidius, who, as we saw last episode, were very interested in astrology, what was going on? Well, the theory of Kramer, whose book, Astrology in Roman Law and Politics, is definitely a book you want to check out if you're interested in the details of this story. His theory is that astrology began to spread in popularity from the 3rd century onward, and Aeneas is just a sign of this, but mainly among the lower classes. It took about a hundred years before the educated elites took an interest. There are little scraps of info here and there during this period from Aeneas to the late Republic, but they all generally seem to support Kramer's conclusion. Like many foreign divinatory practices and cults, astrology began to bubble along among the lower classes of Italy. But then, right at the end of the second century, around the year 100, there was a massive slave revolt in Sicily which took four years to put down, and this was partly an astrological slave revolt. So for context, at this point, around the year 100, perhaps 20% of the 
of the population of Italy were slaves. Such had been the extent of Rome's conquest, and such a population balance is very dangerous. Rome saw three slave revolts from 140 to 70 BCE, and these were proper military conflicts. The third was the famous Spartacus uprising, but the second is what we're interested in now. This is our Sicilian uprising, and this was a revolt not only of slaves, but of disenfranchised free Romans and various other riffraff, led by a slave called Athenio, or he was one of the leaders. It, it was actually complicated. There were several leaders, but anyway. The historian Diodorus of Sicily tells us that Athenio was an accomplished astrologer whose chart told him that he would become the king of all Sicily, and apparently it was this prophecy, or this astrological conclusion, that drew his followers to him and allowed him to lead. So here we see a very solid reason for the central state power to fear astrology. If it had such power to mobilize the masses, it could not be a good thing. We see also that it was indeed at this stage a lower class affair. This is a slave rebellion we're talking about, but we must keep in mind that being a slave in Rome in this period did not mean one was uneducated. In fact, at the end of the second century, most Roman aristocrats were surrounded by Greek slaves who were a hundred times better educated than they were. So we need not assume that Athenio or others like him were doing a debased or simplified astrology, even though they were low on the social totem pole. He may well have been able to practice the full complexities of the Hellenistic astrology, which we know are very complex indeed from episodes 41 and 42 of the podcast. This is speculation on my part, and we don't really know what kind of astrology he and people like him were doing, but it's by no means impossible that there was a very sophisticated astrological underground in Rome and Italy at this time. Oh, and by the way, Athenio was sadly killed in the end by the Romans after four years of fighting. He never became king of Sicily. So perhaps he made a mistake in drawing up his chart, or perhaps he was a bit unclear as to the exact hour of his own birth. At any rate, at some unidentified point, astrology became interesting to the upper class literati, a few of whom we met in the previous episode. There were probably lots of very complex reasons for this, but we should talk about a few points that stand out here that probably are major reasons. Now, Hellenistic astrology was, for the most part, highly fatalist. It claimed, at its most robust, to tell you everything about a person, including key information like the exact date of their death, how many children they were going to have, stuff like this, which was ineluctably set by fate. So that's some heavy stuff. And just this fact alone would explain why not just aristocrats, but anyone who believed in it would want to get in on the action. This is powerful, powerful information to know about someone. But although it's been a bit of a cliche in scholarship, we should look at the influence of late Stoicism here, and especially at one man, Posidonius of Rhodes. So as we know from episodes 43 and 45 on Stoic thought, the Stoics had maintained the efficacy of divination right from their founder Zeno of Citium's day in the 3rd century. In the late Republican era, Posidonius of Rhodes was the scholarch of the Stoic school at Athens. He was the lead Stoic. Posidonius was a scholar and thinker of vast range. He wrote on pretty much every aspect of life, from biology to logic to grammar to astrology. Now, the Stoics believed in fate as a matter of central doctrine. They also believed in the efficacy of divination, not causally, but through a kind of parallelism within the world. 
as we mentioned in an earlier episode. So God had made the world such that when certain things would happen, certain signs in the cosmos would appear at the same time. The sage could read these signs. Thus, it made sense, for example, that a sheep's liver might look funny on the eve of a big battle. The impending battle didn't cause the liver to look funny. It's just that funny-looking livers accompany big battles by the fated nature of the universe. That's how the universe is. Now, the early Stoics don't seem to have put much effort into astrology, though. At least not in the surviving fragments. Not until Posidonius, that is. He was seriously into astrology. And this makes sense, as astrology slots effortlessly into Stoic thought on fate, on the nature of the stars as being pure elemental fire, which we might expect to be especially clear indicators of God's will because God is a being of elemental fire spread throughout the universe, and in general on the whole cosmic order. And better yet, Posidonius was the Athenian ambassador to Rome in the year 87 BCE, and he lectured while he was there. Cicero went to hear him. So this is someone who is enjoying diplomatic immunity from um, the ban on foreign philosophers preaching in Rome, obviously. Now, Stoicism was already alive and well in Roman upper-class culture by Posidonius' time, and it would continue to spread until the 3rd century CE, as listeners who remember episode 43 will know. Some scholars estimate that Stoicism was the largest single philosophic movement in Rome, in fact. Indeed, Diogenes of Babylon, who is an earlier head of the Stoic school at Athens, had also been to Rome as an ambassador back in 156 and met with a warm reception. Everyone was eager to hear what he had to say. Stoicism didn't meet with the same resistance from the old conservatives of Rome that Epicureanism and other schools met, because Stoicism in many ways affirmed traditional Roman virtues like staunchness and bravery and doing one's duty before all else, and it didn't take a strong stance against traditional cult. So it became widely popular, seemingly at all levels of society, as a way of life with various degrees of philosophic seriousness. In a way, Stoicism offered a serious philosophical way of life which mapped nicely onto the way the Romans already thought life should be lived. So it was like a perfect marriage between Roman traditional virtues and Hellenic wisdom. All this being the case, and adding to this what we know of Posidonius' thought on astronomy and astrology, many scholars have attributed the rise in astrology popularity among the upper classes to the influence specifically of Posidonius when he came to Rome. Now, there will certainly be some truth in this, but the most likely case, it seems to me, is that we can't really point to one person or even one school of thought who will have introduced the elite of Rome to astrology. Astrology was everywhere in the Hellenistic world already. And that meant that as soon as Rome absorbed the Hellenistic world, it basically absorbed astrology. I think that's the safest thing we can say. Sooner or later, the elites were going to get interested. However, note the point about fate, because it's the major sticking point in later attacks on astrology. So thinkers like Plotinus, on the one hand, and some Christians, on the other, will attack astrology in late antiquity, specifically because it was understood to subject the human soul to an absolute fate, something that they denied was the case. Stoicism positively embraced fate, and so it does make a lot of sense to look at late Stoicism when we think about how educated Romans sort of theoretically justified astrology to themselves. Now, in the lead-up to the Imperium, we see a big uptick in interest in astrology in the late Republic, and we start to see signs of fully technical mastery of this science. We've seen the stories about Nigidius Figulus. We can add another example, a friend of Cicero and Nigidius one Lucius Turutius Firmanus, 
figured out the exact hour when the city of Rome had been founded by sort of back-engineering to a suitable set of stellar conjunctions. So this is like a weird hybrid catarchic astrology in reverse, which is not an easy thing to do. This takes a lot of technical mastery of astrology. So this is an example of people doing very, very sophisticated astrological calculations at the high levels of Roman society, and doing it indeed for the city of Rome to find the birthday of Rome. In summary, we can say that by the late Republic, astrology had penetrated quite widely into both the lower and the upper classes of Roman society. It may have been a foreign import, but it was hardly adopted at Rome. But it's in the imperial period that things start to get really astrological at the highest level. To quote Kramer, author of that book we mentioned earlier, a new era was now at hand, an age of almost boundless reliance on astrology. So let's have a look at how all this started. We begin with the first emperor, Augustus Caesar. We all remember this guy. His life story is fascinating, but we don't have time to get into it in this context. What we can say about him, though, is that he was the man of the hour, and that he took over the fragmenting republic, which had been racked by warlords and civil unrest for about 100 years. And we saw two episodes ago that Virgil, in the Aeneid, sort of makes an almost messianic figure out of Augustus. He's come to usher in the golden age that's going to last forever. Now, Augustus was, among other things, a master of propaganda. His imperial name, Augustus Caesar, which is granted to him by the Senate in 27 BCE, so a few years after the Battle of Actium, because remember his mother had called him Gaius Octavianus. This name is, of course, a reference to Julius Caesar, his adopted father, but it's also a reference to Roman official divination practice. So the College of Augurs, who were the state-run organ of the will of the gods at Rome that we mentioned last time, would make auguries. Something that was foretold by an augury was Augustum, or Augustus, if, if it were a he. So Augustus's new name said to the people, I am the guy who was foretold by the gods. The Greek version of his name is Sebastos, which mirrors this. Sebastos means something like holy or worthy of awe. Now, Augustus also used the new divination, astrology, in his imperial propaganda. So he minted coins showing Capricorn, his birth sign, as part of his effort to bring all the omens to bear on himself, and even published his own natal chart. Presumably, all of this was in an effort to prove that he was the guy, but I'm not enough of an expert on astrology to tell you what was so great about his chart. Obviously, it was a pretty killer chart, though. Now, Augustus published his natal chart in the year 11 CE, and something else happened in 11 CE, which is hugely significant for our story. He passed an edict forbidding the private consultation of astrologers or the prediction of anyone's death. Now, let's think about the significance of this. The most obvious thing going on here is that the state, which was losing its monopoly on its hotline to the gods, since all manner of non-state divination, including astrology, is flourishing in Rome, the state is cracking down. We can use astrology, but no one else can. This is normal state behavior. But there's more to this story. For one thing, astrology, being pretty vague, no matter how specific it gets, would always be turning up horoscopic charts in which people were destined for imperial power. <laughs> now, if you are an ambitious senator, say, or an army commander, or indeed 
an old school Republican who's looking to reestablish the traditional Roman form of government, which was a, a big problem in the first hundred years or so of the empire. And your horoscope said that you were destined for great things and great power. You might well be inspired thereby to accept your fate and rise up against the emperor. So that's obviously one problem with astrology in the hands of the people. But why should predicting someone's death be specifically forbidden? Well, it would seem that astrologically-minded plotters might logically look to see when someone, say an emperor, was fated to die. And when they saw that the time was approaching, they might set out to be the ones to fulfill fate's decree. So let's say you're thinking about assassinating the emperor, and then you go to the astrologer and he says, well, the emperor's going to die next month, for sure. You'd be like, now's the time to strike. In other words, you don't really want people predicting the death of the emperor, because they will really believe he is fated to die, and thus be emboldened. Now, it's probably no coincidence that in the same year that Augustus published his own natal chart, from which you would have in theory been able to calculate his death date, he also forbade the prediction of anyone's death. Now, this edict of 11 CE was renewed in the year 52 by the emperor Claudius. But let's quickly run through the early Roman emperors. Um, you had Augustus, followed by Tiberius, then Gaius Caligula, the first really crazy one, then Claudius, and then Nero, who was also pretty crazy. So these are the first five emperors. This brings us through just about the first hundred years or so of the Roman Empire. Nero committed suicide in 68 CE. And we can probably date the beginning of the empire from either the Battle of Actium or Augustus's assuming the name Augustus in the year 27. Now, Augustus used astrology propagandistically and tried to curb its practice in the general populace. But the rest of these emperors were avid, if not astrologers, at least followers of astrologers. In fact, while we have some evidence that earlier rulers, such as Seleucus of the Hellenistic Seleucid state, whom we mentioned in a previous episode, had used astrologer advisors, the early Roman emperors had a proper dynasty of astrological sort of grand viziers. This is the court astrologer, a figure who will be a mainstay of Western state power on and off until the early modern period. So, as in so many things, the Romans really set the model for later European developments, and indeed Western developments more generally, because of course the court astrologer was a major figure in the Islamicate world as well. As we saw with the philosopher diplomats who were able to circumvent the decree which expelled all foreign philosophers from Rome, these court astrologers seem to have been diplomatically immune from the Edict of 11 CE and its renewal by Claudius. Being an astrologer could get you killed, but being a state astrologer could get you very, very rich. Augustus's successor Tiberius was a practicing astrologer himself, and also employed a Greco-Egyptian astrologer called Thrasyllus as his close confidant and advisor. Now, with Thrasyllus's help, Tiberius rounded up prominent Roman citizens who had horoscopes that predicted an imperial destiny, or were otherwise sketchy looking, and had them all summarily executed in what was surely history's first astrological mass killing. Also, at a time when rumors were circulating that Tiberius was on his last legs, he ruthlessly enforced Augustus's edict about not predicting deaths. Anyone suggesting the emperor's time was nearly up could be nabbed by the secret police and killed. Now, Thrasyllus is a very interesting character. So interesting, in fact, that we can't resist devoting a whole episode to this criminally neglected esoteric figure. But for now, 
We note that his son, Balbilus, went on to succeed him and served under several emperors. We don't get much by way of astrology under the emperor Gaius, Tiberius' successor, although he did sentence an Egyptian astrologer called Apollonius to death for foretelling his own death. However, Gaius really did die before the sentence could be carried out, so Apollonius got off because Claudius pardoned him. But astrology again comes to the fore with the reign of Claudius, the fourth emperor. Claudius showered Balbilus with honors, including high priesthood of the temple at of Hermes at Alexandria and oversight of the whole kind of network of temples and sacred places in Egypt, so which kind of made him like the high priest of Egypt. He was also even made the head of the library at Alexandria. So Balbilus obviously went on to great things. Again, we see the official hypocrisy of imperial astrological policy. Balbilus specialized in foretelling deaths, we are told, and Claudius employed him to do so while also renewing the edict against any foretelling of deaths for all Roman citizens. This is esoteric science as tool of naked state power. Now, Nero, the fifth and last emperor we shall be discussing in this episode, kept Balbilus on as advisor and even made him prefect of Egypt. But we don't really know much more than that about Balbilus's role as an astrologer under the fifth emperor. But one interesting bit of astrological intrigue has come down to us from the reign of Nero, which might be worth recounting, as it's a pretty interesting story. Two prominent Roman citizens were brought to court for inquiring with an astrologer about their own imperial futures, as well as Nero's. Now, the astrologer was a certain Egyptian called Pamenes, and Pamenes, unfortunately, kept written records of all his clients' charts. So, an imperial informant sort of rifled through the charts, found the incriminating horoscopes, and brought them to Rome as evidence. So the two Romans who had inquired about themselves and Nero were executed. Interestingly, we don't know what happened to Pamenes himself. He might have been executed as well, but there's also the possibility, and this is pure speculation on my part, but it's kind of fun, that his horoscopes were seen as being accurate. Remember, we don't know what the horoscopes said because the crime of these two Romans was simply to have consulted an astrologer about imperial matters. So in the case that the Roman authorities were um, impressed by Pamenes's charts, it may be that they made him an offer of employment, the way modern intelligence agencies, when they catch hackers breaking into their computer systems, first offer them a job before they prosecute them. Now, with Nero, we've, we've reached a pretty good stopping place for our narrative so far. The story of astrology and state power in the Roman Empire continues, of course, but we'll leave it for now. We've seen how the enforcement of Roman edicts could be very erratic. One notable fact is that almost all of our surviving ancient astrological literature comes from the Roman Empire. Almost everything we know about the earliest documents of Hellenistic astrology doesn't come to us through pre-Roman Greek sources like the Petosiris and Nehepso document or the early Hermetic writings, but through imperial-era Roman writers like Dorotheus of Sidon, Ptolemy, Vettius Valens, Firmicus Maternus, Paul of Alexandria, and Hephaestion of Thebes. Now, we call these authors Roman, but they wrote in Greek, except for Firmicus, who wrote in Latin, because Greek pretty much remained the language of the sciences generally, and astrology in particular, throughout the history of Rome. Now, this is by no means a complete list even of surviving Roman astrological works. So there was clearly a huge literature on this subject in the Roman Empire. So why weren't these authors persecuted? Well, 
I leave that to the listener to decide. It's, it's impossible to say, really. But my own feeling is that just as today you would in many countries legally be able to publish a book on chemical synthesis of substances which are illegal, but you'd be arrested for setting up a drug lab and producing the substances. So the writers of astrological texts seem to have enjoyed immunity from prosecution, but practicing astrologers could have their heads chopped off. Even though some of them even published example charts, some of which could conceivably have had political repercussions, they seem to have done okay. It's probably the case that the enforcement of the Edict of 11 CE fell off over time. Claudius's decision to renew it in 54 CE is surely a sign that this was already happening in his day, otherwise why renew it? But going forward into the Roman imperial period, we should keep in mind that just as the College of Augurs had guided the decisions of the Republican Senate, so astrologers guided those of emperors. Some emperors were indeed more skeptical of astrology than others. We haven't really mentioned them, but there are a few. But it's not really too much of an exaggeration to say that the Roman Empire's unofficial form of state divination became Hellenistic astrology. We hope with this episode to have traced the history of astrology at Rome in its early developments in a way that our listeners can follow, while simultaneously giving some reflections on the dialectics of power which can attach to esoteric discourses. Now we've come to the end of our little mini-series introducing Roman history for esoteric historians, and we can move on to the currents of esoteric thought which flourished in the Roman world. And none of these is more important for the story of Western esotericism than the movement nowadays known as Middle Platonism. In the next two episodes, we interview two eminent scholars of Middle Platonism and begin to see how Plato's thought, which we discussed in earlier episodes, was transmitted, reinterpreted, and came to inform a broad range of esoteric movements in the Roman imperial period, from highbrow philosophy to populist religious movements and everything in between. So join us next episode as we interview Professor John Dillon on the history of Middle Platonism. And until then, make like the exact date on which the emperor is destined to die and stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>